Okay, so tonight, 1 Kings chapter 12, we pick it up. Solomon has stepped into eternity. It's about 930 BC, and we're just moving forward in the history of Israel, and we're coming forward from the time of Saul, then David, and then Solomon. And now we get what's known as the divided kingdom. When we go forward in verse 12 tonight, we go forward where now Israel is going to be divided in two kingdoms until the time they're all taken away captive the final southern kingdom taken away captive in 586 B.C. to Babylon. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians took all the northern tribes away prior to that. And this is just Jewish history, and this is just the way it is. And so we have a whole ronda, cusp of a whole new part of Jewish history tonight as we go forward from the divided kingdom. Because after Solomon died, the kingdom gets divided. Now, to refresh your memory, the Lord sent the prophet to Jeroboam, who was an ambitious man and in charge of one of the tribes of Israel for workforce and labor, to that he would become king of the ten tribes, but yet God would keep a remnant for the house of David through his line, and that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, would be the king of the southern tribe of Judah combined with Benjamin. And that's where we left off, so now we see these things happen. So chapter 12, verse 1. And Rehoboam went to Shechem... For all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and been dwelling in Egypt. Because Solomon had heard that prophetic word and was trying to eliminate Jeroboam before he stepped into eternity, that is, before Solomon stepped into eternity. Verse 3, it says that they sent and called for Jeroboam. They called for him because he's an ambitious guy. He's a good leader. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. So now that adversary is representing the tribes to Rehoboam. You can see this is, this is a tense situation. And he says, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he, that is Rehoboam, came back to them and said, hey, depart for three days and then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive, while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people, this good counsel, a servant leader, and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, now, what advice do you give? How should I answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke, saying, Thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but make it lighter to us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, come back to me the third day. And then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahaziah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Now, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king and said, Well, what sure have we with David, in David, 
or the house of David. We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So basically the tribe said, we're out of here. Go do your own thing. You know, you go figure out what you're doing, house of David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. That would be there in the south. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones and he died. They, they killed the tax collector. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now, it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but only the tribe of Judah. That was the only tribe. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, who Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel. So they're on the cusp of civil war that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. Well, this is a division, and it's an unpleasant division, and it affects everybody. Political division, economic division, it's messy, it's ugly. It's a divorce of a people and a nation. It is a divorce of a people under covenant with God. It's like a gigantic, ugly church split is what it's like. It's horrible. And yet, it's the consequences of the previous generation under Solomon and what he did and what he did for his many foreign wives, which we looked at last week and on Saturday. There's always consequences. And we find in the human experience that we are often very much affected in our generation by the consequences of the previous generation. In the last few years, we've heard how the millennials have the least opportunity of any generation in America— they say that there's less economic opportunity, less likelihood to own a home, the American dream, all these things that drove a post-World War II American society. Did people want to come to America to do that? That those happy days are gone. And they're gone essentially because the generation that grew up as baby boomers were spoiled and entitled. They made really bad decisions morally that became laws legally. And they've put us in a place where God cannot really bless us as a people. Because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and forever. And his blessings are upon people who obey him in his word, individuals, households, communities, and nations. And he brings chasing. You, you, you can't mess with God. When you mess with God's holiness and his law and what's right and wrong, and you muddle it up, you're like messing with gravity. The same way you would never try and defy gravity on planet Earth or sending a spaceship to Mars or the moon. Even more so, sowing and reaping, righteousness and wickedness, God never changes. And so we can look at our own timeline right now and see a generation that, you know, they, they're growing up in Orange County and they can't buy a house for $35,000 in Garden Grove like the previous generation. That house is eight, 950000 right now maybe. It's going to drop, but it'll go back up again because 75 degrees will always sell. At some point it'll sell. 
And so they've moved to Texas and to Idaho and to Tennessee and to Arizona and all these places where they can go live. And you feel bad about that. My kids are all millennials, although Luke technically could be a Generation Z, the youngest one. But we don't make excuses for it. And we don't expect a handout for it. Because what we, my children understand what everyone in this millennial generation should understand, and Generation Z as well, is we are self-determined and we make our own choices for what God's going to do in our life. So just because there's a great divorce of, uh, of a society uh, above us and that came before us, that doesn't mean we have to live a divorced life with God and the blessings and the promises of God. And that's what's really important to understand tonight here in the body of Christ. Now, in this story... It says it was of the Lord. This divorce was the consequence of the previous generation, and there's no turning it around. You've heard the phrase, we've all heard it, in irreconcilable differences. And in this case, it's between the Lord and the previous generation. This is his doing. But as we read a few chapters tonight about these consequences and how it affected these people and how it played out, we need to remember that no matter what's going on on a large scale with spiritual people above us, because this is the people of covenant, political people above us, because these are politicians and kings and divided kingdoms, we still are all self-determined to make the right choices with the Lord. When we get to Elijah later on in this book, we'll see. Hey, you walk with the Lord. You can say rain stop, rain stops, rain, 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 rains. We're told in the New Testament is a man within nature, just like us, everyone in this room. And really, it's not about Ahab and Jezebel being king and queen. It's about us being like Elijah and having the spirit of Elijah and making a difference and moving this, the realm of time, space, and matter by moving the realm of the spirit. And that's available to every one of us at any given time in every generation, whether we're Christians in China right now, in house churches, or in Pakistan, or difficult countries, or this country, how it stands right now on this day. But it is a great divorce. It's like a divorce. This is really ugly. And there are many of you grew up maybe in a house where there was a divorce, and there's just no say. And you're caught in the middle. You want to get along with the northern tribes, and you're living with Judah. Or you live in the northern tribes with mom and you want to get along with dad in the southern tribe of Judah. And it's just, what can you do? You're stuck in the middle. And by the way, in this case, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, they're both wicked. You know, right now you can change states if you don't like the governor of California. You can change states. You can go Texas and have Abbott be your governor. You can go to Florida and have DeSantis be your governor. And they'll tell you how the Constitution's applied. But in California, they'll just tell you how they're coming for more. But you have a choice. Can you imagine living at a time in the United States where it doesn't matter what state you go to, there's no righteous kings? There's no one that fears God and upholds the law? That'd, that'd be a sad day. Could actually be a day in our future, but it's not our day today. But if ever was, especially younger people, listen to me, even so, if Rehoboam reigns here and Jeroboam reigns there, God's still going to hold us accountable for who reigns in our heart, not who reigns in the places of the power of politics or even the pulpits of the land. Christ's throne in our heart is our choice, and that's really a key thought when we look at these two kings and their 22-year reign. Rehoboam's going to reign for, excuse me, Jeroboam's going to reign in the north for 22 years. That's about how long worship generations existed. 
Rehoboam's going to live for 17 years. That's about how long worship generation has been a church. Because remember, we existed at Big Calvary before here. Give you timelines. From the birth of a newborn baby to high school graduation, that's how long Rehoboam reigned. So keep that in mind as we think about these men. It was of the Lord, but how we choose to live in such the time such as these is up to us. So this is the hand you're dealt. What are you going to do with it? Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go to offer the sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, then the heart of these people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice. He's asking advice again. There's a different king asking advice. Made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you from the land of Egypt. He's repeating the sin of the wilderness wandering Jews when they came out of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people. Went to worship before the one as far as Dan. That's the northern borders up by Syria. And he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people. So we don't, you know, anyone can be a priest. Levites, that's, that doesn't matter. There's a whole new government. There's a whole new religion. We can do it this way. We just, we have this cow. We have that cow. You can be a priest. I can be a priest. We can all be priests. We can all, and, and, who are not of the sons of Levi. Now think about this. It was just two generations before when they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Israel with David and it falls off the cart and they're struck down dead. For not doing it the way God wants it done. And now here we go. Just a couple generations later, they're making their own thing. And then Jeroboam in verse 32, it says, after making peace from every class of people, he ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. Like the feast that was in Judah, offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificed to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests at the high places where he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month. In the month which he had devised, in his own heart, he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. See, he's this guy. He's got some religion, and he's political. But he's not right with the Lord. And this is what men do when they're moved by fear and a power for control. It really is a divorce. Just picture this. See, he's got all the people in the north, but the religious center's in the south. And they're supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year for Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacle. That's what the law of God says. So the law of God, now he, if anyone even just came and said, hey, Jeroboam, it says here in God's law, Exodus and Deuteronomy, Numbers, it's all here, Leviticus, the priest can only be from the tribe of Levi. And these are the feasts, and these are the dates of the feast. And this is how it works in Israel. You're the king of Israel, under covenant. The Ten Commandments are enforced. God called you to be king. God sent you a prophet who told you you would be king. And when he sent the prophet, we saw this previously last week, he told you, obey my word, honor my law, walk in my statutes, and it will be well with you. So all he had to do, listen carefully, all this guy, Jeroboam, the king and politician had to do was believe the word of the prophet, believe the written word, and obey it. Had he done that, he would have peace. 
in his heart. He would have had peace with God. And he could have said, you know, God told me through the prophet Asja that the kingdom would be divided. Therefore, God's going to sustain me. He told me I'd be king. I am king. Therefore, I can trust in the Lord to guide me as king to reign in the north. And who am I to keep God's people from going to the church down the street where their relatives and their family goes? You see where I'm getting with this? Like, I, 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 your world needs to be bigger than worrying about sheep shuffling to other places. Your world needs to be bigger than that. Small-minded people, they gossip and they're petty. Average people talk about the news. Really great people, they talk about great ideas and the king of kings, okay? And he's a small-minded person. He's got a lot of power, but he's a small-minded person. He's petty. And he's moved by fear. If he had simply had faith in God, believed the word, and been willing to obey the word, he could have been secure. It's like, hey, it's Passover. Everyone's like, dude, what's, what are you going to do with Passover? Well, you know, let's just, let's just have the family gathering <laughs> after the divorce. Let's just, you know, it's like that wedding where people are divorced and they got to get together for a wedding. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You ever been to that wedding or that funeral? I've been doing these for 34 years. Let me tell you, you get them at weddings and funerals. They haven't talked for 12 years. They're, they're not paying for the burial. They don't care what you do. And they're fighting for the trust. And they're trying to steal money from their adult siblings right now. I've seen it all. But the way of maturity for Jeroboam was to say, you know what? God made me king. He told me to obey his word. I'm going to trust him. I'm a Jew. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And the first Passover, first Pentecost to come, me and my wife, are, we're going we're gonna to show the people in the northern kingdom how we respect the southern kingdom. And we're going to go like parlay, like pirates or something. And we're going to go in peace to Jerusalem. And we're going to keep the feast because we're going to obey the word of the Lord. That's what faith would have done. But fear is like, no, we can't do that. What if, what if the child from the divorce that I have custody of go visit their dad and they want to stay with dad? And they don't stay with us anymore. This is almost, can you see what I'm talking about here? Because this is like, see, he's afraid they'll go down there and want to stay with, they want to stay with Jeroboam, with Rehoboam. Isn't it funny? Both have similar words too. You don't get this again. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. When you're driven by fear of unbelief, there is no end to how far your mind will worry about things that just will cost you sleep when you're the most powerful man in a piece of land the size of Southern California. It's just too bad. There's a great lesson for us to not be moved by fear of loss by not trusting the Lord. If we have faith and trust in the Lord, we have nothing to fear, even loss. Because that's the whole idea behind Philippians 4.13 when Paul says, I've learned to abandon to a base and I've learned through all that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're to be fearless and bold and courageous with the Lord. And we're to be free from the fear of things that, well, they say 90% of what you fear never comes to pass anyways. And this is the fear of someone who has not learned to trust in the Lord, even though they've had the written word and the spoken word given to them, and they heed bad counsel. And when we make bad decisions with our life, we do live in fear. And we're moved by fear not by obedience, and not by trust. It is, it's so much better to just believe God's word. Have faith in it. Have faith that he's on the throne and do the right thing. And, and, and trust the Lord. 
for all the things I've done right or wrong in the ministry in 34 years, one thing I, I learned, I, I don't know how God just made me so gracious. Well, probably this goes back to Pastor Brian Broderson. Back in Vista in the 80s, someone started a church right down the street from Calvary Chapel Vista. The church was about 2,000 members at that time, give or take, and immediately 500 of those people left and went right down the street to that church. It, it was a, a, an exodus of hundreds of people to the cooler, newer church, had a dynamic speaker, you know, and all these things, and they all went. And I watched Brian Burson, he didn't even blink. He never spoke ill of that pastor. He never spoke ill of that ministry. Brian did what Brian always does. He just kept plowing the field that he's called to plow. He just did not, he didn't get off his game. All this stuff's like, oh my goodness, we've lost 500 people. The tithes have to be down. There's way less people in the sanctuary. We need to retract to one service. The things that people do in like, that, 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 small-minded people. But Brian never blinked. And it did me well to learn that people come and go all the time, right? If you want to go down and hang out with Rehoboam, great. You want to hang out with Jeroboam, great. But please don't think I'm Jeroboam, okay? But you understand the principle. We need to be secure in who we are with the Lord. And we need to be secure in his call in our life. And we need to be secure in his provision, protection, and prosperity that he has for us. And let God's people figure out their own walk with the Lord like we're figuring out walk with the Lord. And we need to accept responsibility for our self-determination for what God wants to do in our life. And God forbid we make our own religious holidays and our own priesthood. What have we watched in the last 40 years of America? People making new holidays to celebrate things that generally are contrary to God. There's nothing new under the sun. Hey, I'm, I'm going to go to my grave with Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. And whatever else the world's going to do, they're going to do. And they might force it on us and force this day off or this thing or whatever. It, it, it doesn't matter. We grew up and it was, we celebrated the discovery of the world, you know, Christopher Columbus Day. Now it's like Indigenous People Day. Okay, well, I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. We celebrate Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, every day. Court told me, hey, it's Yom Kippur today. I didn't know that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't pay that much attention. But either way, Yom Kippur's pointing to Jesus. Every day is Yom Kippur for the believer in Christ. Every day is a feast day. But is this, isn't this so, man? Oh, let's create a new holiday to celebrate what we do contrary to God's word. Well, you can do that. But there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereby is, boom, death. So don't do it here. Chapter 13. And behold, a man of God went up from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar. Um, he stood by the altar to burn incense. These are his faulty altars, his own little thing he set up. Then he cried out against the altar, the man of God, that is. By the word of the Lord, he said, oh, altar, altar, that says the Lord. There's nothing like Old Testament prophets, is there? <laughs> this is awesome. And he says, that says the Lord. Uh, behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places whose burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. And so it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God because guys like King Jeroboam don't like men of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. 
And the altar was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had been given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, "Uh, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. See, one thing you see in ministry is people are remorseful for the consequences of their sin and pride and arrogance, but they're generally not as sorry for their hearts being wrong to cause it in the first place. They just want their arm restored. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in the place. For so it was commanded to me by the word of God, the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now, an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his son came and told him the works of, that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king, and their father said to him, Hey, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went when, who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, Saddle up the donkey for me. And so they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. And he said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Not happened as they sat at the table. See, prophets are so weird in the Old Testament, but they're classic. So they sat at the table, and he, he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord God, the Lord, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, You eat no bread nor drink water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're not going to die and be buried where your fathers are. So it was, after he'd eaten bread and after he'd drunk, he saddled his donkey. This is the man of God from Judah. And the prophet whom he brought back. And then he, when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it and the lion stood by the corpse. This is a classic scene, right? Dead man, lion, donkey. Like picture a mountain lion in the backwoods of San Diego County and lion, or saddleback, lion, donkey, dead corpse. Verse 25. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown by the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way he heard it said, It is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it a second time. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, the body, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was after he buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones besides his bones. For the same... Which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. And by the way, of course, we'll see later on, it did. Josiah did 
hundreds of years later, the very thing that was prophesied here, because God tells us the future before it happens because it's outside of our dimension. And he knows everything. Verse 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him and became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. So Jeroboam's sin brings utter destruction on his family. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's go back to these two prophets. This is one of those chapters you say, like, you read and you go, like, come on now. It's pretty crazy, right? First, you got this prophet, and he's a prophet. He's got the power to make Jeroboam's arm stuck like this. Like, that's pretty awesome, you know? Could you imagine if you had the power to go to a politician fighting the Lord and go, like, those says the Lord, and they're like, oh, arrest them, because that's what politicians do with people like us. Arrest them, and then his arm doesn't come back. That'd be like, what? Whoa, right? It's pretty crazy. And then, like, uh, uh, my arm, can you pray for me? Because remember, Jeroboam already had a prophetic word over his life and everything else. Like, hey, it's all a misunderstanding. Hey, no hard feelings, huh? No hard feelings. Hey, hey, you want to come to my house for dinner? No, because God told me I can't. I don't eat anything here. I don't drink anything here. I'm like, this is like a, a Navy SEAL mission for Jesus. We're in, we're out. This is what we do. We're just in, we're out. We're not shaking hands. We're, just, we're in and we're out. Now, the other man of God who lives there, this, this is where the story gets very unusual, for sure. And I don't fully make sense of this story, but there is a key application that we can all learn from. Don't let the words of men, even those who say they're spiritual, usurp the word of God ever in your life. We're told the devil goes about uh, as it, that he disguises himself through prophets and false prophets as an angel of light. And we're told in the New Testament to test all things and hold fast that which is good. And Pastor Chuck Smith used to say this quite a bit with Calvary. When you come to what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. So you're at this, pastor, this prophet's house. And he's like, hey, no, the angel came to me. Well, how come he came to you and not to me? Right? Like, are you now the mediator between me and the Lord? I remember in Virginia years ago, there was a couple that went to a big, big, um, big church in Virginia Beach. Like, this kind of southern church, this big church. And they felt called to move to North Carolina and do some ministry in North Carolina. The, the, I remember he had been a former, like, pro baseball player or whatever. And, and they, just, they felt called. Uh, they had a high profile. This couple had a high profile in this big church. And when you're a big church and you have a big mortgage and you have all these big things, you need big names and it keeps people coming to the big church with the big names and the big place and pay the big bills. It does happen, unfortunately. So this person had sought me for prayer about the whole thing and they felt really bad. Like, well, we feel God's calling us to go do this, but the pastors came to us and said, God would never tell us to move from Virginia Beach and leave this church and go do that. And I was like, well... Jesus is your mediator, and his sheep hear his voice. That's why when we've watched in the last few years, people we love that have been here for years say, God's calling us to text. I'm like, good, praise the Lord. God bless you. God be fruitful. I could never usurp the voice of the Lord for people. Even if I don't think they have a strong walk, it's still not my place. But especially people that do have a strong walk and good fruit. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Jesus died on the cross 
so that each individual believer would not have to go through a man or a woman in some sort of a hierarchical system to hear the voice of the Lord. We have his word which thoroughly, thoroughly equips us for every good work. We have his spirit that guides us in all truth and we have access to the Father. And I, I expect the Lord to speak to you. I want him to speak to you. When you hear the word taught, I want the Lord to be speaking to you like, hey, let's do this, let's do that. It, it's the word speaking to you, not me. God might be speaking through me, but I, I'm just the conduit. I'm the hose and I don't want to get kinked and I don't want to get in the way. I just want the blessings to go to you from the word of God by the spirit teaching it historically and contextually. And you see, the one thing for sure the prophet's mistake here that died is he let a word usurp the word that already God gave him. And that's a dangerous thing. We watched in the last three years where government officials and church officials tried to usurp the word of God into what we could do and what we couldn't do as a church during COVID. It was a frustrating and difficult time. And we tried, we tried, you know, like, I mean, we all tried. And I commend every church for trying. And then, you know, it was like the 12 tribes of Israel in the time of judges. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes and tried to figure it out. But, you know, if the word of God says not to forsake the assembling of yourself, and if the word of God says to sing praise and worship to the Lord, and if government says those are dangerous to you and to the people six feet within you, a whole new standard for what's dangerous or not that never previously existed in my in our human race that we know of. You say, all right, we could try that. But then they say, no, but this big box store can be open. This strip club can be open. This liquor store can be open. This abortion clinic can be open, but you can't be open. If you're dumb enough and stupid enough to follow that mandate and not obey the word of the Lord, then shame on you on the day of Christ Jesus. The Bible says not to forsake the assembly of yourselves. And men and women for 2,000 years have risked everything from Caesar to the communists in the Iron Curtain, to gather and sing songs and pray and say the word of God together under intense situations. You women remember seeing the Sabina Wormbrandt movie and what she went through. That's our legacy, not cowardice and letting somebody who says, oh, the Lord told us this and the Bible says obey Caesar, you know. Do. No. People who are not spiritual, mishandling scripture, telling people who are spiritual and humble and broken what to do and what they can't do is ridiculous. So if you get nothing else out of the last three years, if we ever face anything like that again, God forbid, I'm gone and you're here, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves. Don't stop singing to Jesus and don't stop saying his word and don't stop praying together. I'd rather die in the valley of lepers with Ben-Hur and the Jesus freaks than live free in the palace of Caesar. In Jesus' name, amen. This is ridiculous. Sometimes you got to have some fight, you know? Even if you're the most calm, casual person, sometimes in baseball, you get being one time too many, and you're, you're, you're going toward the mound. Because some things are worth fighting for. Or a couple weeks ago when Tom Brady got cheap shot, and the one wide receiver goes to the sideline, and the former coach of the Buccaneers goes, hey, that's your quarterback, go defend him, and then it was on. Like sometimes you just got to let the world know in Jesus' name, you got fiber, backbone, courage, and you're not going to back down against evil. And you're not going to let some word of frivolous, foolish men and women replace the word of God in the heart, of, in your heart, and in your standards of your worldview. Now, we're not done yet. Okay, chapter 14. Because you don't want to come here next week and start with Jeroboam. Uh, <laughs> Jeroboam and Rehoboam are tonight. We're going to put those guys in history books after tonight until 10 years from now. 
At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Okay, so we just laughed off with that Jeroboam has to be exterminated and destroyed from the face of the earth. He cannot exist. God's like, you're on the clock. You're done. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, please arise and disguise yourself that... uh, that they may not recognize you, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahazah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. And he will tell you uh, what will become of the child. See, when people are in crisis, their baby's going to die, suddenly they become spiritual. And that's okay if it's sincere. But this guy had crossed so many lines. We've been talking about that. He crossed so many lines. Man, golden calves, your own religious holidays, your own people being priests. Man, there's this line you may never come back from. Verse 4, and Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh. She's the queen and came to the house of Ahazah. But Ahazah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahazah, there is a wife of uh, Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he's sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahazah heard of the sound of her footsteps and she came through the door. He said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people, and I made you ruler over my people Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, to do only what was right in my eyes, but you've done more evil than all who were before you, for you've gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuge until it is all gone. Man, that is a really bad word to get from the Lord. That's a bad word. We, that's not for us. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. For the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave. Because of him there is found something good towards the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He'll uproot Israel from this good land, which he gave to their fathers, and will scatter them beyond the river. And because they've, they've made wooden images, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who sinned and who made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tizra. And when she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him. And all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through a servant Ahijah. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed are they written, not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers, then Nadab his son reigned in his place. So the book of Kings focuses more on the northern kings. When we get to Chronicles, it focuses more on the southern kings. There's about 40 kings between the two northern southern kingdoms, for that, you know, 300 plus year reign of kings in Israel history, there's never a good king in the north. That's a difficult thing about when you read about the northern kings. There's, there's never a good king. You just end the cycle of bad kings. 
In the south, there were some good kings, quite a few of them actually, like Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, and others. So this is the death of the first evil king of many evil kings in the northern kingdom. And God pronounced judgment on all Israel and upon his house specifically. This is just the way it goes. But this story of Jeroboam reminds us that there's always consequences. Again, there's always consequences. Like, God gave him the opportunity to be great. He could have been the standard of a great king for the ten tribes of the north. That, that's what was offered him. When the Lord sent Azure the first time and ripped the garment and all that, and all that happened, these ten tribes, and he went back to Egypt and hid in Egypt and you know, in exile till Solomon died. He could have prepared his heart for the Lord. He could have prepared his heart to be a king. He could have received that word. He could have been seeking the Lord. He could have been growing in personal character and humility and, and the right attitude and the right perspective. He could have been studying the word of God. He could have been doing anything positive and favorable toward the word of God and the things of God. But he did none of that. So he came to power And look what he did. This is what happened. And you only get one life. He had his chance. He reigned 22 years, and this is his legacy. That chapter 13 says he has to be exterminated and destroyed. See, when you see the wicked in power and thriving, like it says in Psalm 73, when you come to the house of the Lord, just get perspective. They have their day, and then they're gone. Because the wicked who make war against God, his word, his son, and his church that he loves, they've put themselves in the place of being exterminated and destroyed. Because they're already under his judgment, and they're already under his wrath. There's a self-determination here, and when you make the bad decisions, when you make the good decisions, you bless your marriage, or your singleness, or your roommates, your dorm mates in college. When you make the right decisions with the Lord, you bring blessings to work. You bring blessings to school. You bring blessings to the job. When you make the right decisions with the Lord, you're just a blessing. You're Susie Blessing and Johnny, God bless you. Like you're just, you're a blessing. And what you touch is life. It's truth. It's life. It's blessing. You prosper in everything you do like Joseph in Egypt. Joseph in Genesis had all these things go against him, but his heart was always right with the Lord. And he's always going forward with the Lord while everything's falling apart around him. False accusations, beaten forgotten about, all those things. But what is he? He's a blessing. He's a blessing to his brothers. He's a blessing to Potiphar. He's a blessing to his dad. He's a blessing to Pharaoh. He's a blessing to all of Israel. And then he's a blessing to all Egypt. He saves their lives. Daniel was faithful in Babylon. Everything's gone wrong. Uprooted from his hometown. Sent to a university with a different language, different God, and different worldviews. And what did he do? He prospered. His life threatened because of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. What's he do? He seeks the Lord. He interprets the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, Darius. What does Daniel do from the time of his youth to the time he's an old man? They put the gold chain around his neck and said, you have all the answers. He's all good. He prospered, regardless of who was the king, Babylonian or Persian, whether they were good or evil, whether they threatened or it was a time of peace and prosperity. Such lessons for us. Jeroboam, self-determined rebellion to God's call on his life, self-determined to God's word, brought it on himself, brought it on his wife, brought it on his dead son and all of his descendants. It's just, it's such a warning that there's a way that seems right to a man, but then thereby is death. And if we sow such evil against the Lord in the 
recesses of our heart and our mind, there's never going to be a good ending. Now we get to verse 21. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah, but Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, an Anamitess. So see, here's what we talked about, that Pharaoh's daughter was Solomon's second wife, and the way Solomon's age is here, excuse me, Rehoboam's age is here, we know that Rehoboam would have been born by Nama, the Ammonitess, before Solomon took Pharaoh's daughter as wife. So this is his first wife, and she's a Canaanite. Now Judah did evil, that is the tribe of Judah, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with the, their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. So they're just as bad in the south as they were in the north. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill on every green person. And they're also the perverted persons. These are the homosexual prostitutes, the, um, the Kadeshi. That's what they were. They're homosexual prostitutes. So the previous generation, it's women. Now it's men having sex with men in the same places that Solomon had built. It's a degeneration. And they did according to all the abominations of the nation, which the Lord, the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel had come into the land. You know, that was like 400 plus years before. That's everything he warned them not to do. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel to give them the land. They're worse than the people that God cast out, the Canaanites. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishka, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. And commit him to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and then brought them back into the guard room. Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. It's a civil war, just two political parties fighting each other, like two divorced parents and an ugly divorce fighting over the kids. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nema, the Anamitis. Then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. Well, I've been talking about these gold shields as we've been moving forward from Solomon. Solomon had those gold shields, and I just had this simple thought. With the Lord, it's always forward, onward, and upward. That's what it is with the Lord. In Philippians, it says, for getting those things are behind, we press on what lies ahead to the upward call of God. And with the Lord, it's forward, onward, and upward. That's why I like, I've been using the phrase a lot lately, always forward. We can never change yesterday. We can't change our mistakes of yesterday. We can't change the problems that we've inherited from other people that came before us yesterday, politically, family, whatever. But we can purpose in our heart not to make excuses for our lack of faith or action in our timeline and we can purpose in our heart that we're going to elevate the kingdom. Elijah is going to elevate the kingdom in a drought in just a couple chapters. Which gets me thinking about these gold shields. Because it's, it's temporal monetary wealth. So it's something we understand. It's hard for God to, to teach us about eternal wealth because we, we don't understand it. It's received by faith. We just have to believe all that we're sowing and doing for the kingdom Every cup of cold water in Jesus' name, every penny given to missions or, you know, the time you gave of someone because you give your time, your energy, resources. We just have to believe by faith as we're sowing as bountifully as we can in the human experience that it'll all work out in eternity. We don't 
have measuring rods to really kind of sense how much fruit we really have. So God does use temporal wealth. And in this case, you got gold shields. And again, Rehoboam's heart is not, it's less for the Lord than Solomon's was, which was less than David's. So instead of finding his own way with the Lord, instead of accepting being the king of Judah, and like, this is what I get. I don't get 12 tribes like my dad get had, but I get this, and I'm going to be faithful with this, and I'm not going to make excuses. I'm definitely not going to make the same mistake as my dad, multiplying foreign wives, and I'm going to get things right with the Lord, and I'm going to bring the priest in here, and I'm going to have him read the Torah to me, and I'm going to learn these things, and I'm going to obey these things, because that's what Jehoshaphat did, Hezekiah, and Josiah. So it was certainly doable to be done. And those guys are all preceded with evil dads, particularly Josiah's dad was Manasseh, who was like really evil, as bad as they ever came in Judah. No excuses, elevate your walk. Elevate the kingdom, and with eyes of faith, just go for it. That's what could have happened. So as sad as it is to go from gold shields to bronze shields, that's really reflecting where his heart was at with the Lord. That's reflecting where the kingdom had fallen. But I got to thinking, what would be an upgrade from gold shields in the temporal? The jewels, the diamonds, the rubies, the emeralds. Remember that stuff was brought to Solomon. Because we often think, oh, the, the, as far as we can go and as believe is gold shields. So let's hold on to gold shields. Or let's not at least end up with bronze shields in a recession and depression. But I would say, let's find diamonds and jewelry for the gold shields. See, with Jesus on the throne, the word of God as our foundation, and the Holy Spirit in our mind and hearts guiding us, we should be moving toward glory to glory to glory and upgrades with the things of the kingdom. We should be seeking God for greater faith to move bigger mountains for the kingdom for our timeline and the generation that's come behind us. And our legacy should be one of just awesome faith that every generation after we're gone, it's nine years since Pastor Chuck stepped into eternity today. I would hope when you and I have been in eternity for nine years that people look back and say, wow, what a legacy. And that people we leave behind would take our faith of golden shields and they'd say, you know what? I can do better than my dad or my mom. I can do better than my grandparents. I'm going to grab those gold shields they gave me and I'm not going to let the devil come in here and give me bronze shields. I'm going to trust God and believe God for diamonds and jades and emeralds in my shields. God is a blessing God. And I'm not talking about the temporal. I'm talking about the spiritual and eternal right now. But we understand the temple. And that's why gold to bronze is so easy to follow in this text. So WG, body of Christ. These two kings were great failures, but it doesn't mean we have to be failures. Whatever failure came before us, that's them. This is our day. We're here. We can choose great prosperity and success with the things of the Spirit and the promises of God. And that's what we should be about. I have a whole new perspective on gold shields. I see a greater glory than any glory we've ever received in church history. And even if we don't see it in our day, I at least want to believe it until I step my last, breathe my last and step into eternity. And wouldn't you agree with me? Don't you want to be in a world of negative, unbelieving people, doom and gloomers? Don't you want to be that one person wherever you go that you believe not only has God done great things in your life personally, but he can do even greater things in the lives of the people you're looking at as you move toward eternity? Don't you want to be that person? Don't you want to be that person on your deathbed? Or when you get smacked in the head on car wreck, it's your last second to think about it. Don't you want to be that person when eternity finds you? I say yes and amen in Jesus' name.